0: Welcome to Central Speaks, home of our weekly podcast. Central Speaks is produced by Hamilton Central Baptist Church. In, in a country like New Zealand, Canadian geese don't get the same kind of you know, high-powered press coverage like they do in uh, North America. But, but there's a lot that we humans can learn from migrating Canadian geese. When Liz and I lived in Northern California, we would often, around about this time of year or the change of seasons, begin to see Canadian geese flying either south from the cooler temperatures in Canada down to the warmer states in Uh, in the southern US and Mexico and so on, or coming back home again as well. And as I suspect you already know, geese, when they fly on these migratory trails, fly in the form of a big V. And again, as I suspect many of you will know, ornithologists have actually studied the habits of migrating geese, and they've discovered a number of unique features uh, about their practice of mutual cooperation. For instance, when they fly in these massive V formations, they are actually following a deliberate strategy. Uh, As the front goose at the apex of the V flaps its wings, it creates uplift or an updraft for the two birds that are flying immediately behind it, uh, meaning less resistance, easier flying. And then the same thing happens uh, throughout the V in stages as the bird in front creates uplift for the birds behind. And and scientists have calculated that uh, migrating geese like this can fly 71% further distance than geese that are flying on their own. When a goose, for whatever reason, falls out of formation it immediately feels the drag of going it alone and quickly gets back into formation, uh, taking advantage of the uplifting power of the burden front. In In other words, flying solo and being individualistic is harder than working together. They also appear to have a form of shared leadership, For when the lead goose gets tired of being the one at the apex of the V, uh, it falls back to the back of the V and another goose immediately goes up and takes the lead and they share the leadership responsibility. Then, apparently, there's a whole strategy that they have for encouragement. For geese from behind honk encouragement to those that are up ahead of them in order to motivate them to keep up their speed. Those who lead are motivated and buoyed by those who follow and cheer them on. But more than that, they also have this highly developed form of pastoral support. For when a goose is sick or wounded and can't keep up with the rest of the geese, uh, two other geese fall out of formation with it And they follow it down to the ground where they help protect it. And then when a sick or a wounded goose is able to travel again, it links up with the next passing gaggle of geese. There's a lot that we can learn from migrating geese traveling long distances for the winter. Well, this morning we're part two in a series of messages that we began last week looking at our core values as a church. Uh, Last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at the mission statement that we have adopted as a church. A mission statement, of course, is a little bit like a, uh, a, a description that answers the question for an organization, what on earth are you doing here for heaven's sake? We exist for a particular purpose. And we've defined our reason for being, our mission as a church, as a little statement that the Apostle Paul made in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. We exist as a church to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Well, well this morning we're looking at the first of seven values that we have identified. And the particular value today is authentic community. Values, if you've ever been involved in an exercise of defining these in an organization, they're a little bit like those things which we prize or that we regard as the most important aspects of our character or our corporate personality. That They're like the parameters that guide behavior. Sometimes they're defined as attitudes or ambitions Uh, To use a sporting analogy, they can sometimes be referred to as the defining rules of the game or boundaries of fair play. Sometimes values of an organisation describe that which is self-evident and is observable and rewarded. Other times the values are ambitions and things uh, of of our character that we're aiming to achieve or acquire. So, as I say, the first of these values is authentic community amongst everything else that we want to try and do and be as a church we value being a community and not just a weak or insipid in name only community we want to be a community that is truly authentic and real or tangible And we reckon that this is actually at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Following Jesus means to be in relationship or in community with fellow followers of Jesus. To put that another way, Christianity is a team sport, not a solo discipline. Uh, To be Christian is significantly more than just believing the right things and theological truths or praying a prayer or even having a personal relationship with God. Just me and Jesus, that's all it is. Having a, a personal, self sufficient relationship, that's what it means to be a Christian. Well, actually, no, it may begin there, but according to the Bible, to follow Jesus involves. Interconnection with other followers of Jesus rather than just me and Jesus, it would be better to express it we and Jesus. Encouragement, engagement with other Christ followers is actually part of the deal. To, to use another analogy, when uh, to be Christian implies adoption or incorporation into a brand new family. When Liz and I got married, our immediate family actually became expanded. At the center, of course, was our love for each other that brought us together. But as a consequence of marriage and that relationship, we also gained a whole bunch of other things as well. We both gained a new set of parents, and extra brothers and sisters. Our personal love brought us together, but the consequence of marriage actually brought us much more. And it's not unlike that when a person becomes a follower of Jesus. If you like, marry God and you get the rest of the family as part of the deal. It is part and parcel of following Jesus. You cannot really have one without the other unless you want to settle for a dysfunctional relationship with God and and this is a topic about which the Bible has a huge amount to say We, we do life together not just on our own if we go back to when God created the first human being, Adam he sat back and said, not bad that's good But then he determined that it was not good for man to live alone. Need a community. So he created a new, better model of human being that they would be in community with, right? Been suggested that God himself is actually an expression of community, rather than just a solo operator. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are like an archetype of community that we actually follow. When you come forward into the New Testament... This was a theme that people like the Apostle Paul wrote about to numerous churches. In fact, Paul's signature depiction of the makeup of the church as like a human body made up of all kinds of different parts and pieces and organs. No one part can actually function all on its own. It requires the interconnection and cooperation of all parts of the body in order to be healthy. Now I'm not sure that uh, Paul ever personally saw uh, migrating Canadian geese, but he wrote some similar characteristics of mutual care, like they reflect. For instance, in Galatians chapter six verse two, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfil the law of Christ. Or when he wrote to the Roman church in Romans fifteen verse one, he said this: he said, "Now we who are strong." ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. These are statements about community and about relationships that exist across those who follow Jesus. We are to mutually support one another. Then you have a verse uh, like in Hebrews chapter ten, verses twenty-four and twenty-five, that talks about how Christians come together, and the coming together has the effect of actually building up and encouraging other Christ followers in their relationship with God as well. Uh, we're not to neglect that. Apparently, in some days, and uh, in, in some for some communities, in Paul, and the, the writer of the. Book of Hebrews, time there were some Christians that were downplaying the value, the importance of gathering together. And he wrote and said, Do not neglect coming together, as some are in the habit of doing. Then in, in Proverbs 27, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Together we keep each other sharp. And, and there are literally heaps and heaps of other references and descriptions of this concept of being in community that the Bible describes. But there is one particular passage that actually inspires me more than any other. I I think it's a fabulous description of what an authentic community of believers might look like. In fact, some have suggested this was an example of the Christian church in its purest form. It's a description of the very first Christian church. Community of Christ followers. The members and leaders of this church included people who had been eyewitnesses personally to the ministry of Jesus. So you kind of think that they might actually have the good oil in terms of what the intent of Jesus was for those who followed him. They had uh, seen his miracles with their own eyes, they had heard him teach and describe the nature of the kingdom of heaven with their own ears. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, there's a little window through which we can look in and see what Christian relationships and community looked like at the very beginnings of the church. Here's what it says in Acts 2, starting at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, putting this passage into its right context, which we must always do, this is a description of the community of believers that formed after the day of Pentecost. On that spectacular day, 3,000 people declared that they were followers of Christ, went through the waters of baptism, and were added the church was born. Uh, Some of them were long-time residents of Jerusalem, or even nearby cities in Israel. Others, a whole lot of others, were probably pilgrims who had actually come to Jerusalem for the Pentecost festival. uh, But they got more than they bargained for, and they stayed on. And this little description of what it was like to be a part of this fledgling new community of believers has inspired generations of the church over the centuries. In fact, some have even suggested that the verses that we're looking at today describe normal Christianity. That this is what it means to belong to a normal Christian church. The way they lived and loved and cared and shared with one another, this is the normal prototype of of what God was setting for others to follow. Here's the problem. When you compare what we read about in this passage in Acts chapter 2, the life and the dynamic of this first Christian church with the models and the paradigms of church that most of us have grown up with today, there's a rather large difference, right? Right? In fact, some commentators have noted that what we read at the end of Acts chapter 2 is more descriptive of a living organism than of an institution. Whereas the concept of church that comes to mind for most people, those inside the church and those outside of it, is of an institution, a religious club that you join. A church, that's something you go to or you become a member of, or you belong to if you're that way inclined. The major functions of the institution are held on Sundays in a place like this. Uh, By contrast, the believers we read about in this first church were far from an institution. They were actually a living community. A couple of years ago, a, a group of us decided that we were going to join the Hamilton Working Men's Club, So we signed the form, we paid our dues, we had our names vetted by the membership committee, and for some inexplainable reason, they accepted us and gave us a membership card. As a member of the club, we have access now, whenever we want it, to the restaurant, the sports facilities, other mutual benefits for those who are members of the club. When we married off our daughter last year, as a member of the Hamilton Working Men's Club, I was able to hire the champagne flutes at a much cheaper rate than if I went to hire Paul. We joined the club. But it's not a membership that actually impacts my life. In fact, to be honest, I can take it or leave it. And if the services offered no longer really interest me, I can opt out of the club. Being a member of the club does not actually influence my life greatly at all. But what we read about in Acts chapter 2 is significantly different to that that they weren't members of of a, a society or a club. These first believers were a demonstration of what Paul was later to call the body of Christ. They were interdependent upon one another. They were in constant relationship. They were in communication with fellow Christians. They didn't go to church. They were church. The church wasn't a building or or a a gathering at a set time during the week. The church was a a network of people and their relationships with each other. And there are a number of examples of this in these verses in Acts chapter 2 that are worth highlighting. For, For instance, maybe the first is the hunger to learn. Verse 42 says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. There was a teachability about these people. They had touched the power of God, or more correctly, the power of God had touched them, and there was a a hunger to learn. There was a a thirst for knowledge of God. Most likely, the apostles would hold uh, teaching sessions in the outer courts of the temple, And people would go and they would listen to those who had been with Jesus and had experience, uh, teach more about him, the accounts of his ministry and how the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah were fulfilled and what Jesus had said and done. Those who were new, those who were young to the Christian faith had a respect for those who had been followers of Jesus for some time. Personal spiritual growth did not happen in isolation or independently. They learned from the apostles, and they were were willing to receive instruction and mentoring. Then we read on how they were deeply dedicated to each other. Verse 42 says that as well as being devoted to teaching, they were devoted to the fellowship and then the original Greek word that's translated as, as fellowship here is an extremely important word. It's uh, incredibly rich in meaning and dimension, and it certainly meant a whole lot more than just having a cuppa at the cafe after church. It described a depth of relationships between fellow believers, and the word is the word koinonia, And koinonia is not actually easy to translate into English. Sometimes it's represented by the word fellowship, sometimes as community, sometimes as togetherness or commonality or sharing things in common. It describes the kind of together-sharing relationships with those that these new believers had with each other. And verse 42 says that they were devoted to this kind of coin ear. There was a deliberative buy-in action. We are going to engage in this. In other words, this was deeper than belonging to something like a club or a social group or a political party. It actually meant being committed to people. Like migrating geese, I guess. It represented a mutually supportive community. What was that like? Well, verse 43 says all the believers were together. They apparently didn't view themselves as independent islands or spiritually self-sufficient. They were constantly rubbing shoulders with other believers as they lived out their relationship with God. Not just on their own, but deliberately in contact with fellow Christ followers. Verse 44 says they had everything in common. Now, at this point, you might want to actually, you know, the captains put on the seatbelt sign because this could get a little bit turbulent when you unpack what this is like. Their, Their love for God infected their love for others and that meant that they could not stand to see people in their community who were in need when they had plenty or more than they personally needed. Verse 45 says that people were selling their possessions and goods and they gave to anyone as he had need. That this first generation of believers did not regard themselves so much as owners of property, as now stewards of property that used to belong to them but now belong to God. For to them, the idea that when you became a follower of Jesus, everything about you now belonged to him. And so that which now belonged to, to, to God, which used to belong to us, and if God and his economy wanted to share some of that which is now his that used to be ours, as stewards, they simply cooperated with what God was wanting to redistribute that which was his that used to be ours. So surplus possessions were sold, and profits were distributed. I mean, the, this was a tangible expression of koinonia, And their devotion to each other. In fact, this dimension of koinonia actually was to become the hallmark of Christian community down through the ages. Well, what's described in Acts chapter 2, for instance, is not an isolated instance that just happened at one period of time. You go two chapters on to Acts chapter 4, at the end of that chapter, you read something similar. There were no needy persons, Acts 4.34, among them, from, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need You go forward another couple of chapters to Acts chapter 6, and the whole idea of wealth sharing had developed by then into a ministry toward widows in the church who couldn't support themselves. A little while further on in the book of Acts, you read about churches in different parts of the world all agreeing to take up a special offering over a period of time to help the Jerusalem church, which had an amazing ministry Uh, in in the province of Judea, uh, where there had been a massive famine. Later on, in the writings of the Apostle Paul and James and John, the whole notion of sharing out of excess became enshrined as a basic expression of Christian life, so much so that Paul could write... In these shocking terms, in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, he said, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them. Strong word here. Not just make it a suggestion, if you want to, you can do this. No, command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Anybody like to have the Apostle Paul as your pastor? (laughs) Or James could say, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I don't read a reference there to exuberant participation in corporate worship. Not that that's unimportant, but that's not the kind of religion that God our Father accepts as real. The kind of religion that God our Father accepts as real, tangible, is when we actually care for those who are in need. Now, to be Christian in the first church was a whole lot more than just believing the right things. It also meant doing the right things, and particularly by those in need that we're capable of helping. Then another expression of this koinonia was their repetitive hospitality. Uh, particularly in each other's homes. Verse 46 says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. i oh, been church. Oh, it was deeper than gathering at a certain place one day in the week. They were constantly opening their homes and their front doors to one another. And people were constantly going through those open front doors. They shared meals together. That classic symbol of hospitality in the Eastern world. They would visit one another and fellowship with one another. Their homes were not like little ivory towers or selfish places of retreat. They were open and welcoming of others. And I, I want to suggest to others that this is actually a lost art in the 21st century church. Over the course of a generation, it was different in the concept of church and Christian faith that I certainly grew up with, that my parents taught me. But we have lost the will and the dynamic of hospitality. People don't invite others into their home like they used to. I wonder why that is. Maybe it's the lure of television, Maybe it's an unhealthy addiction to various forms of social media these days. But we seem to have less need, apparently, for social interaction and fellowship than in previous generations. And I'd want to blow the whistle here and suggest we have actually lost something. I, I reckon these initial followers of Jesus found such joy and vitality in opening their homes to other fellow followers of Jesus... That any loss of privacy was more than compensated for by the blessing of experiencing this concept of koinonia. Then another feature of their community life was their acquaintance with the miraculous. Verse 43 says that everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. This was a church where things happened. Services, gatherings, home gatherings weren't locked into a formal liturgical straitjacket. If if people had needs, prayer was offered that those needs would be met. And the power of God would show up and touch the lives of those who sought Him. And things which were humanly impossible began to happen. These first generation believers loved to pray for and to minister to each other and the laying on of hands of the praying for the sick to be healed was normal Christian expression. Then it was also something that was noticed by others. Verse 47 says, they enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In, in other words, this was a community with attractive appeal. This was a a church with a credible reputation. When when Christians within the Jerusalem Church told their family members, their friends, their neighbors about the community that they belonged to, there was an interest, and awe, and wonder. I try to imagine what that might have been like. Maybe something like this. Maybe neighbours of Christians who, who knew that in their neighbour, their Christian neighbor's household, there was sickness, serious sickness. People were in trouble. That they were dying, or that they were really sick. But they happened to notice that there were other groups of people that would come to their neighbor's homes. And then the next week they would notice that the member in the Christian household, their neighbour, was, was now up and well. I wonder how that happened. Remember, this is before the days of antibiotics and Doctors and hospitals. People got sick in the diet. And that would have created confusion. And, and, and perhaps talking over the garden f- fence, as it were, they would ask, Well, what, what happened to you? I thought you were really sick. And, and who were those people that kept coming to your house? which gave the opportunity for the Christians to tell their non-Christian neighbors their story of Christian community and to gently invite, hey, would you like to come along and be part of us as well? And, And people were inquisitive, and they began to ask questions. And the more they asked questions, the more they became enthralled. And, well, God added daily inquisitive people who were being saved. What does this all mean for us then in 2020? Now here's a question to take away and consider. Is what we read about in the Bible purely historical information about a time in the past? Or is it more of a blueprint and a prescription for the future? And if we think, I suspect most of us would, that it's the latter... How do we go about creating community like this in our experience of church? You see, a church can have all the right structures and ideas, all the right theology, but still not achieve authentic community. In the end, the creation of community, that's a matter of people's hearts. It's not so much about other people either, by the way. It's about me and you. Am I willing to allow myself to be known? Am I willing to allow other people to love me? Am I willing to know and to love other people? Am I prepared to adjust my self-sufficient approach To life or my understanding of being a Christ followers and to engage with and to share the journey with other people. I I, I guess it's very possible for a Canadian goose to make the long journey to warmer climes from Canada all on their own. But why would they want to? It's so much harder. There's so much resistance to be battled with when you are on your own. It's lonely. No one is there to help you when you get sick and tired. Flying together in formation, it's actually so much smarter. And so it is with our flight into the future with Jesus as our Lord. We actually need each other. Together, We can achieve so much more. Together is less lonely, less risky. Together we grow. And so the choice for us, it's ours. Fly alone or fly together. Is being a Christian an individual activity? Or is it a team sport? that we play our part, but we rely on the rest of the team as well. Let me finish with the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, a little statement that he made that I think offers some wise advice. This is from the Message Translation, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 to 12. He said, it's better to have a partner than to go it alone. Share the work. Share the wealth. And if one falls down, the other helps. But if there is no one to help, tough. Two in bed warm each other. Alone you shiver all night. By yourself you're unprotected. With a friend you can face the worst. Can you round up a third? A three-stranded rope is not easily snapped. Friends, we are in this together. Let's pray. Joining us this week online. Come join us on Sunday mornings too if you're in Hamilton. Find out more about Hamilton Central Baptist Church and discover ways to get involved at www.hcbc.nz. Join us again next week at Central Speaks.